Today we're continuing our road trip series, this series that we've been doing all the way through this season of Lent, which is the time leading up to Easter, as a way of us helping, and get, helping to get our heads around what we're going to celebrate and reflect on at Easter time. And uh, so we've looked at a number of stories that have happened on the road. We began by talking about Jesus going on the road into the desert and uh, this question that he had to wrestle with about whether he would depend on his own strength or whether he would choose to depend on God's strength. We talked about uh, the healing of this man named Bartimaeus who was blind sitting by the side of the road and this really profound question that Jesus asks him, what do you want me to do for you? We talked about the Sabbath as Jesus and his disciples went off-road and went for a bit of a walk through some wheat fields and uh, this question about whether we pay attention to the spirit of the law and why things are important or whether we focus on the letter of the law and what we have to do. And then last week we talked about the story of this man named Saul as he was radically transformed uh, but had to wrestle through his willingness to let go of the things that he'd done and the things that had happened in the past. And so for me, as we've gone through the last number of weeks, there's been a key theme that started to emerge, which was not my intention actually when I planned this series out. I just picked all these road stories. But one of the themes that's come through very strongly for me is this theme of dependence to really wrestle with this reality for me personally, for us as a church as well, to say, who are we depending on for all of the things that we've got? Are we depending on our own resources? Are we depending on our own strength, our own wisdom? Or are we throwing ourselves on God and saying, God, what have you got for us? And what is it that you want to do amongst us? And so for me, it's been really helpful as we've been through this season of Lent and as we journey towards the cross to be able to dig into that and to really say, God, what does greater dependence look like in my relationship with you? And so my hope and my prayer for you is that over the last number of weeks, as we've spent time digging into these stories, there might be some key themes that are emerging for you as well. But as we wrestle with all of those questions, there is one really big question that often jumps out at us. And it's this question, how much is enough? Ultimately, at the end of the day, how much is enough? What do I have to do in order to please God? Is there a point when I can say, yes, I've done enough, and so now God is pleased with me? How do I make sure that I'm doing the things that I have to do? How much is enough? And sometimes that can be a really, really helpful question for us to wrestle with because it inspires us and it motivates us and it makes us think, yeah, there's more that I can be doing. And so that's a good thing. But if we're honest, sometimes it's because we just want to know what the minimum is that we need to do and be able to say, no, I can let myself off the hook because I know that I've done the minimum requirement. Sometimes we can wrestle with this question because we want to compare ourselves to other people and to be able to say, well, I'm doing more than them, so I must be doing okay, I guess. And sometimes it is because we just want to let ourselves off the hook. And so as we look at this story today, that is another road story that happens on the road, the person who's asking these questions to Jesus is wrestling with this same question. How much ultimately is enough? What's the minimum that I have to do? And how can I get to a point where I can say, oh, well, I'm good. I've done more than enough here. So in Luke chapter 10, verse 25, we have this man, a teacher of the law, who came up and tried to trap Jesus. Teacher, he asked, 
What must I do to receive eternal life? And we've talked about teachers of the law a number of times over the last few weeks. They were the experts in Old Testament law. They were people who spent their whole lives reading the Old Testament laws and wrestling with all the different laws and trying to be able to say which ones apply in which circumstances. And they were the people who you would go to to get advice, to say, okay, this happened, what do I now need to do? And so he was one of these experts, knew the law inside and out, one of these letter of the law guys who knew what to do in every situation. But he comes to Jesus to trap Jesus. And that word trap is actually the same word that when we first started this series and we talked about Jesus going into the desert to be tempted by the devil, it's exactly the same word. Tempt, trapped, trap or test, those words are all actually the same word originally. And so this teacher of the law has come up to try and tempt Jesus to say something, trying to test Jesus and see whether he's the real deal, uh, trying to trip him up. And so he says, what do I have to do in order to receive eternal life? And really the question that he's asking is, what's the minimum amount that I need to do so that I know I'm good in my relationship with God? I can say, yep, I'm done. I can tick that box and then I can just go about my merry way. And Jesus answers his question with another question, as Jesus very, very often does. In verse 25, Jesus answered the man, what do the scriptures say? How do you interpret them? The man answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. You're right, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. So the teacher of the law, as you would expect him to, quotes from Old Testament laws. He talks about a law that comes from Deuteronomy, which says that we should love God with every part of who we are. And then another Old Testament law that comes from Leviticus that says that we should treat other people the way that we want to be treated. It's interesting because in Matthew 22 and in Mark chapter 12, Jesus is asked, what is the most important law? So there's another conversation that goes along similar lines. And some people would say this is actually just a different way of interpreting that interaction. Some people would say that they were two different conversations. And so this teacher of the law may have overheard Jesus answering the question, what's the most important law? But Jesus answers it exactly the same way. He says, the most important thing for us to do is to love God with every part of who we are and to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And so Jesus says, do that and you will experience life. Live the way that you were created to live. You live out everything that's in all of the Old Testament laws. But what's interesting is that Jesus doesn't see those as two things. He sees them as one thing all together. He says to the teacher of the law, do this one thing and you will experience eternal life. He doesn't say, do these things, love God and love your neighbor. He says, do this, and you will live. And when Jesus is asked what's the most important law, not laws, he says, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. That is the most important commandment. He doesn't say most important commandments. He says most important commandment. And so Jesus sees these things as two sides of the same coin. Love God with everything that you are, Understand how much he loves you and then pass that love on to other people. All of that is wrapped up together. And the good thing for us is that that's what following Jesus is all about. It's really that simple. Love God, love people, and do whatever we want to do. As long as we're loving people, we've got everything under control. So that's one great way of articulating. If anyone ever asks you what's at the core of what Jesus taught, you can answer that way. Love God, 
love people, that's kind of the summary. As people who are Church of Christ people, we have this really important theme, which also summarises it another way. We would put it this way, in all things, love. And so that's been up on our sign for the last couple of weeks, intentionally put that up a few weeks ago in the light of the things that unfolded uh, around Christchurch and some of the conversations that were happening around the place. As a reminder to us and to all the people who go past the sign that at the end of the day, in everything that we want to do, we want to have love at the centre of that. It was fascinating because when I was putting that sign up, just as I was putting the word love up, someone drove past and gave me a toot on their horn and a little wave. So it was fascinating that someone resonated with what that was saying. In all things love. Another way of being able to say this is what is the most loving thing to do? To ask ourselves, in every situation that we find ourselves in, what is the most loving thing to do? What does love look like in this situation that then shapes the decisions that I make? I was actually listening to a podcast this week and they framed it this way. They were talking about uh, sometimes we can get so focused on winning arguments that we lose sight of what we're supposed to do. And this person said, if we win an argument but we fail to love the person, everyone has lost. And I think that's a very, very helpful reminder of what this looks like. If winning an argument, if being right, if getting our point across is more important than loving the person that we're having a conversation with, and we've actually missed the whole point of what we're supposed to be all about. So, that could have been the end of this little interaction between Jesus and the teacher of the law. Jesus says, yep, you're right, that's exactly it. Love God, love people, do that, and you're good. But, the teacher of the law, and here's where we can see there was probably some ulterior motives, wanted to justify himself in verse 29. And so he asked Jesus, well, who is my neighbour? Surely, Jesus, you're not saying that I have to love everyone. I have to love my neighbour as I love myself. So who is my neighbour? Again, what's the minimum requirement here? Who are the people who I have to say are my neighbours that I have to love? And by default, who are the people that then I don't have to worry about and I don't therefore have to love? The teacher of the law wanted to justify himself. He wanted to show that he was right and he wanted to look smarter than Jesus. He wants a rule. He wants a law. He wants the letter of the law to be able to say, what do I have to do? Missing the whole point of the spirit of the law about why it's all important. And so Jesus then shares this story as his response to that, a story which is very familiar to lots of us. There was once a man who was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when robbers attacked him, stripped him and beat him up, leaving him half dead. Jerusalem and Jericho were these two really, really important cities in Jesus' time. And Jerusalem was up on the top of a hill and Jericho was down in a valley. And so there were people who would regularly walk this road from Jerusalem down to Jericho and then back up to Jerusalem. And so it's really important for us to recognise that this story says that this man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. We'll see why that's important shortly. But on this road, it was a really, really dangerous road. There was lots of desert and there was lots of rocky places and lots of places for people to be able to hide so that they could then attack people who were walking this road. It was such a dangerous place that it was actually called the Bloody Way. That was how dangerous it was to walk this road from Jerusalem to Jericho. And so this man walks from Jerusalem down to Jericho and he gets attacked by these people. They take everything, including his clothes, and they leave him there for dead. In verse 31, it so happened that a priest was going down that road, but when he saw the man, he walked by on the other side. 
In the same way, a Levite also came there, went over and looked at the man, and then walked on by on the other side. Now, Jesus didn't actually need to include this part of the story. He could have just said at this point, this man got attacked, someone came along and helped him, that's what it looks like to love your neighbour. And it could have been anyone that Jesus could have chose. He could have picked any ordinary, everyday people who came along and maybe didn't help this man out. But he chooses these two religious leaders. One of them is a priest, and a priest was one of the people who ran all of the services in the temple for the Israelites, the person who offered sacrifices and did all of that work. And Levites were kind of like their assistants. They were the ones who came and they helped to run the services. Uh, They were the ones who cleaned things up and got things ready uh, for the priests. The key thing for us to recognise is that the priest and the Levite were going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Because if they were going up from Jericho to Jerusalem, we could probably let them off the hook a little bit maybe and say, well, they were on their way to work. So, you know, they didn't want to to run late and get fired. So they were on their way. That's why they didn't help the man out. But they're not. They're actually on their way home, which is very important for us to recognise. So there's a whole bunch of reasons why they may have then chosen not to help this man. Maybe they were late for dinner, so they didn't want to get in trouble, being late for tea. They could have been worried about getting attacked themselves. This was a very dangerous road, and so they thought, we've just got to keep going, I can't stop here. They might have thought that this was all a trap. So if I go and help this guy, there's some other people waiting, and so then they're going to come and attack me. But most people would agree that probably the biggest reason why they chose not to help this man is because it would have made them ceremonially unclean. Touching someone who was bloody, touching someone who was dying, would have meant there was all these rituals that they then had to go through in order to make themselves clean. And that could have taken up to a week for them to go through that whole process and then be able to be in a place where they could go back and work in the temple. So they choose not to help this man. The priest sees the man, and you can kind of imagine he kind of glances out the corner of his eye and then, whoop, no, just, (laughs) and keeps going. But the Levite, we read, looks at the man, goes over to him, and then chooses to go on his way. So he didn't accidentally see him. He went over, saw him lying there, and said, nope, conscious choice. I'm not going to help this guy out. Now, in Jesus' day, there were actually lots and lots of stories that went this way. A story that would be told by a rabbi, a Jewish teacher, about two religious leaders who would not do something, and then an ordinary, everyday Israelite who would come along and would do it as a way of teaching people about what was really, really important, about following the law. And so the crowd who's listening into this and the teacher of the law who are listening to Jesus unpack this story would have thought that's where this is going to go. Okay, the priest and the Levite, they didn't help. So along comes an everyday, ordinary Israelite worker and he helped the man. And so that's what it looks like for us to love our neighbour. But that is not at all what Jesus says. He says in verse 33, a Samaritan who was travelling that way came upon the man and when he saw him, His heart was filled with pity. A Samaritan is someone who had Jewish and non-Jewish ancestors. And so that didn't necessarily just mean that they had parents or grandparents. This could have been generations before that they had mixed race parents. And the Samaritans were seen as very unclean people. You would not associate with them if you were a Jewish person because they were kind of the worst of the worst. There was an area called Samaria that people would actually walk all the way around just so they didn't accidentally come in contact with someone who was a Samaritan. They were seen as the bottom of the pile. 
ceremonially unclean, religiously unclean, culturally unclean, the worst of the worst. And so Jesus doesn't say that it's an ordinary, everyday Israelite worker who comes along and helps this man. He blows all of that out of the water and says, a Samaritan came along to this man. And you can imagine the reaction of the teacher of the law and the look on his face and all of the crowd who's standing around. Did, did he just say Samaritan? Is that, he couldn't have said that. They must, we must have misheard him. Samar- really? A Samaritan? That's what he's going to talk about here? That makes no sense. Well, Jesus keeps going. And he says, this man came along. He went over to the man who was on the side of the road, poured oil and wine on his wounds and bandaged them. And then he put the man on his own animal and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Take care of him, he told the innkeeper, and when I come back this way, I'll pay you whatever else you spend on him. So this Samaritan takes all of his own resources to help this man. Wine and oil that he would have normally used to drink and to cook with. But when those were mixed together in Jesus' day, that was a really, really powerful way of healing wounds. The wine obviously has alcohol in it, and so that would help to clean the wound. And the oil was used as a kind of anti-inflammatory. And so he mixes those together and pours that on the wound of the man. He bandages him up. He puts him on his own animal, probably a donkey, so that he then has to walk the rest of the journey that he's going to walk. He takes him to this inn, he looks after him, and then he leaves and says to the innkeeper, this is some money to help out, but once he's good, if he goes, I'll come back later and I'll pay the rest. If there's any other expenses, I'll pay all of it. And some people would say that was probably up to two weeks worth of accommodation, but it may have even been all the way up to two months worth of accommodation given the state that this man was in. Regardless, it's a lot of money that this guy is using to help out someone who he's never, ever met before. And so Jesus concludes in verse 36. In your opinion, which of these three acted like a neighbour towards the man who was attacked by the robbers? The teacher of the law answered, the one who was kind to him. Jesus replied, you go and do the same. So Jesus says, which one acted like a neighbour? Which one loved this man the way that he would want to be treated himself? And the teacher of the law can't even bring himself to say it was the Samaritan. He says, the one who was kind to him. In other translations, it says, the one who showed him mercy. And we've talked about mercy before as this idea that we put ourselves in someone else's shoes And we say, if I was this person, how would I want people to treat me? That's what the answer is. The teacher of the law can't even bring himself to say, it's the Samaritan who showed that mercy. He just says, the one who showed mercy to him. So this is a story that is very, very familiar to a lot of us. And regularly, when we talk about this, it's a reminder for us that if we see someone who's broken down on the side of the road, then we should help them out. If we see someone who's hurting or someone who's in pain, then we should try and come alongside of them. But Jesus is actually challenging us to go a significant distance further than that. And he's really challenging us to say, how do we look at other people? Do we live with eyes of compassion and mercy? Do we take time to put ourselves in other people's shoes and say, if I was this person, how would I want to be treated in this situation? 
do we stop and ask ourselves that question? What is the most loving thing to do in this situation that I'm facing? And so that's far more than just people who are on the side of the road or people who are in significant pain. This is about saying people who are struggling emotionally, someone who might be lonely and isolated. What does it look like for me to put myself in their shoes and say, if I was them, how would I want to be treated? People who are struggling relationally, maybe there's stuff that's going on in their lives. What does it look like for me to put myself in their shoes and say, how would I want to be treated if I was this person? What's the most loving thing to do? People who are maybe struggling spiritually, they're just asking lots of questions and wondering, where's God in the midst of the stuff that I'm journeying through right now? What's it look like for me to stop and put myself in that person's shoes and say, how would I want someone to treat me if I was them? The Samaritan in this story is not someone who's just trying to obey the rules, trying to obey the laws. He's not trying to work out what the minimum is that he has to do. Because he could have gone over to the man and he could have done some of those things, but he didn't need to use his own wine and oil. He could have just kind of taken him to the inn and then left him there. He didn't need to stay with him. He didn't need to care for him the way that he did. But he stops long enough to ask himself the question, if I was this man... If I was on the side of the road and everything that I've got had been taken and I was lying here dying, what would I want someone to do for me? What's the most loving thing to do? That's what I'm going to do for this person. So as we begin to wrap up and get ready to transition into communion, there's a question that I would love us to think about as we head into this week. And it's simply this. What does love look like this week? As I think about the week that's ahead of me, What does it look like for me to embrace loving God and loving people? And I'll say up front that this is not supposed to be a test. It's really, really easy for us to get overwhelmed at this point and to think, great. So my takeaway from this week is that every single person that I meet, I have to stop and I have to put myself in their shoes and I have to think about what do they want from me. Every single person that I see, I have to think about what's the most loving thing for this person this week. When we do that, we start to feel very, very overwhelmed. And that's fair enough, because we can't do everything for everyone. And that's not the point that Jesus is trying to make in this story. He's simply trying to challenge us to say, are we willing to go on what is the lifelong journey of continuing to have our heart shaped by him? continuing to have the way that we look at the world shaped by the way that Jesus sees people. And so perhaps as you sit here this morning, there might be one person that you can think of that you know is struggling for any sort of reason right now. And so what's tugging at your heart right now is I know I can put myself in their shoes. I know what's going on for them and I know what I would want if I was that person. If there is one person that you can think of, then work out how you can serve them this week. How can you show God's love to them this week? There might be a group of people that you're aware of, a group of people that you regularly spend time with. You can say, what's it look like for me to express love to them this week? But it has to begin with that starting point of love. Because if it doesn't, it turns very quickly into obligation, which very much makes us feel like, great, now I have to we've gone down that road again, do this for all of these people. And that very quickly turns into resentment, 
which very quickly turns us to this place of saying, actually, I'd rather know the minimum that I have to do. This feels like too much. So I'd rather someone just told me, what's the minimum that I have to do so that I can feel okay about the rest of it and just go on my merry way? If we go down that road, we've missed what Jesus is trying to say. He wants us to understand how passionately God loves us. And in a couple of weekends, we'll have the opportunity to recognize how profound that is, the deep love that Jesus has for us that goes all the way to the cross. That's how much God loves us. And all he wants us to do is to understand that and embrace that love and then to share it with the people that we interact with this week. So I'm going to pray and then we're going to transition into a time of communion. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful that you are the God of love, that you are described as love, not loving, but the core of who you are. Your very identity and character is love. That's the starting point for you. That's the purpose behind you creating this universe and creating us as humanity. It's the purpose behind you creating every single one of us is so that you could extend a loving relationship to us. You simply want us to understand how much you love being with us, how much you love who we are. And you've done everything necessary to prove that to us through Jesus. We're so grateful for that. And that your expectation in return is not that we then have to do a whole bunch of things. Your expectation is simply that we love you in return. But that automatically then shapes us and changes us and transforms us. It helps us to see other people the way that you see them. That that same love that you have for every single one of us, you have for every person that we are going to connect with this week. And so my prayer is that for each one of us, you would help us to be able to see people how you do. To see them with eyes of love and compassion and mercy. And that for those who you want us to come alongside of, you would help us to put ourselves in their shoes And to be able to say, what's the most loving thing for me to do in this situation? And with people who we maybe find more difficult, people who we find challenging, people who we can tend to get into conflict with, I pray that you would challenge us about what that looks like too. To be able to see them with eyes of love. To not need to win arguments, to not need to be right, to not need to prove ourselves to them. But simply to say, what is the most loving thing to do in this situation? We thank you, Jesus, that at the core of who you are and what you gave us to do, it's simply about love. But we know that as we live that out, it's incredibly complex. And so we thank you that as we go into this week, it's not a test. It's not about us needing to make sure that we do enough so that somehow you will accept us. You accept us right now as we are. And so we get to live in the freedom that comes from that as we move into this week. And so help us to then love the way you want us to. In your name we pray. Amen.